comes Christmas, right? Here comes the Christmas season. And I think Christmas more than any other season that starts with all of the, you can tell because all the things that start to happen, all the symbols you could say, snowflakes, Santas, Christmas trees, seem to be getting here earlier and earlier. I think they were there even before my birthday in September. I think we went to Lowe's and they're already selling Christmas trees. There's the religious stars, angels, mangers, shepherds. Starbucks is serving peppermint mochas, which is my favorite. Right? These are symbols that we have that signify the season that we're in, the season of Christmas to celebrate a holiday. And since the anticipation of Christmas usually exceeds any other holiday, those symbols really do show up earlier and earlier, and they are more and more. Symbols are important. We use symbols, whether they're trees or statues, wreaths or flags, lights or fireworks. Symbols are used to convey the important message about history or about beliefs or even used to rally people around an idea. Even in the church, we use symbols. And even though I think it's not just a mere symbol, I think there's a special presence of God. I I can't necessarily say exactly what it is. There is the symbol of communion. We don't believe in transubstantiation. We don't believe it's the actual blood and body of Christ. But when we take communion, it's a symbol. This is my body. This is my blood. Or how about through baptism? There's nothing salvific about baptism. We don't believe that. And yet, we believe that there is a symbol about a spiritual reality when somebody is baptized here. Symbols are important. And yet, symbols are only a representation of reality. And sometimes, it's a representation that we can mold to what we want reality or what we want the symbol to say about reality. Symbols are not the reality of itself. It's like looking at a picture. I can have a picture of my wife, and it's a beautiful picture because my wife is beautiful, and yet it's not my wife. It's not the same. Something tragic can happen when we start to love a symbol, when we desire a symbol more than we love what the symbol represents. And thinking about what I was going to teach about today, riding in my car to work, I was listening to an audiobook uh, about stuff going on with the woke movement. I know that would surprise some of you with me. The author was recounting lessons that he had learned from a poem called The Grand Inquisitor. It's contained in Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Now in this poem, right, it's a fictional poem, Jesus comes back during the Inquisition. And he comes back, and he starts doing things that he did in the New Testament. He starts healing people. He starts doing these miracles. People start to follow him, just like they had in the Gospels. The Catholic Church becomes enraged, and they arrest him. And they actually sentence him to be burned at the stake. Remember, this is a piece of fiction. That night, before Jesus' execution is scheduled, the Grand Inquisitor comes to speak with Jesus. Now, this author who's not a Christian. What he learns from the conversation that ensued in this poem was that the Catholic Church had no more use for the real Jesus, but rather just wanted to use the symbol of Jesus to perpetuate its power and influence. In fact, when the real Jesus comes, he stands as a threat to their power and influence because the Jesus in reality was much different than the Jesus that the Catholic Church had been perpetuating. 
And so when Jesus shows up, they have to eliminate him. And because if the people knew who Jesus really was, they're not going to follow the Catholic Church. Now, again, this is fiction. So in the end, there's this thing where Jesus kisses the Grand Inquisitor on the forehead after he makes all these accusations to Jesus. It stirs in the Grand Inquisitor's heart, and the Grand Inquisitor, while he doesn't turn or anything like that, he does let Jesus go and just says, never come back. And this author, though he's not a Christian, God used this moment to put a question in my heart that I propose to you today. And that is, do I love the symbol of Christ more than I love the person of Christ? You know, this isn't the first time this question has come up. If we go to uh, Revelation 2, turn there. Revelation 2, this is where Jesus is going to the different churches and he's giving them his assessment of them. I would encourage you, if you haven't heard any messages on this, Pastor Scott did do a series of messages on these different churches and what Jesus said to them. And I would encourage you to go there to our website and download them and listen to them. Revelation 2, 1 through 5, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, the Ephesians had become a church that in many respects looks like a healthy church. There was somebody who was patient. They endured. They didn't put up with evil. They had a purity to them. They had moral purity. They had orthodoxy to them. They found out false teachers and would expose them. But then what happened is it seemed that they loved these signs, these symbols of a healthy church, moral purity, doctrinal orthodoxy, that symbolized their love for Christ. And they had gotten away from actually loving Christ. They had gotten away from loving the person of Christ. They loved these symbols. They loved these things that they were doing more than the actual person. You see, many people invoke the symbol of Jesus to benefit themselves without actually loving Jesus. We see this all the time. How many people wear crosses around their neck or have some type of religious type of paraphernalia or symbols around them for good luck or maybe for peace of mind? How about people who have, are, who accomplished something, and what do they say? I like to thank Jesus, my Savior, for this. But nothing in the rest of their life ever points to the fact that they are a follower of Christ. How about this? Almost every president, they said maybe the first five didn't because they didn't think they had to, but every president since then has given a religious affiliation. And yet do we really think that our country... And the federal government is following God. 
they do that because they know culturally it benefits them to say that they have some type of religious affiliation. It helps to get votes. You know, I was reading an article that addressed the decline in those that identify as Christians, and they want to know what happened. Why are there so many more people who are not identifying as Christians? The hypothesis they used is, well, it's no longer culturally beneficial to be a Christian. And so those people before who used to mark some type of religious affiliation now are called the generation of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the generation that marks none under religious affiliation because it no longer benefits them. And so as we see in 1 John 2.19, it's not that we have less Christians right now, most likely. It's probably just that those who identified with us before and left never really were of us. And we have a fancy word for that now. It's called deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my faith. Josh Harris has talked about that. I'm deconstructing my faith. So many celebrity Christians have come out and talked about that. I'm deconstructing. It's called apostasy. They were never of us. And yet it could still infiltrate in this church. I know one thing that would hurt me greatly and hurt the pastors here greatly is if we became a church that merely loved the symbol of Christ more than the person. See, maybe there's people here today who love us because of the community we offer instead of the one who gives us community. Maybe there's people here who love what we teach their children, giving their children good morals instead of loving the one who said, let the children come to me. Maybe there are people here who love the biblical values or the conservative values that are taught from the pulpit instead of those who seek to value Christ. Maybe there are people who love our music and love how it makes them feel instead of loving the one who put a new song in our mouth. And while there's nothing wrong with community, I love that we have a great community here. I love that we have great children's programs. I love what Pastor Scott does from this pulpit in teaching us biblical values. I love what Hayward and the band, Pastor Rick and the choir do with our singing. These are symbols of a healthy church and can be empty symbols without a love for Christ. So I come here today with a question that requires our deep reflection. Do you love the symbol of Christ more than you love the person of Christ? And to help us reflect on this question, I ask that you turn to Psalm 63, and that'll be our text today. Psalm 63 starts out and the heading is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So here's the setup. There's only two times that we see where um, David was in the desert of Judah. The second one, the second time is the one we think when he was king. So the setting is this. David's found himself in hardship. We look at 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 17. What we see is David has to flee Jerusalem because his son Absalom has set up a king, a kingdom, or set up a throne, rather, in, in Hebron. What started that was four years prior. Absalom would sit at the gate 
People would come by and he would say, hey, who are you? Where are you from? What business do you have here? And they'd tell him this or that. And he'd go, you know, I'm sorry. No one, really, no one really can hear you over here. No one really cares about this. But if I was king, you would get justice. Kind of a good reminder in the church of people who start talking about the leadership and start going, well, if I was in leadership, this is what I would do. Those people tend to be divisive people. So he does this for four years. And then after four years, he tells his father, oh, I'm going to go worship over here. And so his father lets him go, and he sets up a throne. And it looks like he's going to attack Jerusalem. And so David, fearing a war, fearing that the sword would be brought against Jerusalem, fearing that his people would die, he flees. He flees with his advisors. He flees with those who are trusted and close to him. And he goes into the desert. Hiding in the desert again, David is stripped of his power. His son hates him. All the comforts of being a king and in a palace were gone. And worse yet, David knows that in part, this is probably the consequence of his own sin. Because of Bathsheba and Uriah, God said the sword would never leave. And now David knows that this particular thing will only be solved through the sword. So he's sitting in this desert, stripped of his comforts. He sits down to write about what he misses. He's looking over the vastness of this desert, thinking about everything that brought him here, thinking of the situation that's going down. And what we're going to see is David writes a psalm longing for God. He writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I pray that today we will learn to love you. Show us any parts of our hearts where we just love the benefits or the symbols or the feelings and don't have a desire for you and who you are and your character. May we love you for who you are. May we love you for being God, our Savior and our Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. What is clear from the psalm is David's love for the person of God. David uses personal pronouns in the first eight verses. Look. Verse 1, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Verse 2, I have looked upon you. Verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you. Verse 5, my mouth will praise you. Verse 6, I remember you. I meditate on you. Verse 7, you have been my help. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. Clearly, David understood the truth of loving God personally. And I wish to help us meditate on the question, do you love the symbol of Christ more than the person of Christ by looking at the traits of a person who loves the person of God? These traits will be desiring God, being satisfied with God, and trusting God. The first point will be the longest. There are several points under it. So hang with me. If you, if you start looking at the time and going, wow, he's not still on verse 1, it's all right. We'll make it. So desiring God. The first thing we see is David desires a true relationship with God. One that is based on who God truly is. Look at this. Verse 1, oh God, you are my God. At the very heart of the Christian life is verse 1. We see both the greatness of God, also called the transcendence of God, where he says, oh God. And then we see the personal nature. My God. The imminence of God with him. And we can picture this scene again, right? David's in the desert. He looks at the vastness of the desert. He sees the heavens. He's reminded of his creator. Oh, God. He reflects upon his life. The youngest son of Jesse. A mere shepherd. To then anointed king by Samuel. To a great warrior to the hunted enemy of Saul, to the praised king of Israel, now exiled king. He sees the sovereignty. Oh, God. He sees all around him the markings of a creator and cries out to the one that can help him, saying, Oh, God. But he doesn't stop at the reflection of a vast and powerful God. But then out of a heart that has walked with God intimately for so many years, he adds in, My God. David's psalms show an intimacy with God that was knit so closely that he is said to be a man after God's own heart. This is not a man that thinks his prayers are as a cry out into the void of the night in the desert, hoping that some God of the universe hears him. But rather this as one who calls out to a close friend or a spouse expecting to be heard. He's not throwing a Hail Mary pass. He knows God's there. He knows God will hear him. And furthermore, he's confirming his commitment to God. No, no. Even when all this is gone, you are still my God. I don't care about those other things. I still want you. When I have nothing else, you are my God. I don't need your power. I don't need the power. I don't need the palace. I don't need my comforts. I want to be in your presence. You are still my God. If I could just be in your presence by your side, that would be enough. This is not a love of God based on what he gets from God, but rather is based on God himself. The trait of a person that loves Christ has a correct view of Christ, 
both as the all-powerful sovereign king of kings, but also one that can speak to the personal intimacy with God by saying, my God. Let me show you this. Go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Colossians is basically a book saying that Jesus is better. Jesus is sufficient. And so he's going to get right to it. He does his introduction. He does his thankfulness, which is pretty common in the letter of Paul. And he gets right into it in verse 15, talking about Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right? We're going to get right into the attributes of God and how powerful he is. Christ is the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Think about that right now. Christ is God. He created everything. He was their creation. He's created everything. And not only has he created everything, everything was created for him. The purpose of everything is for him. And not only did he create everything and everything before him, but he sustains everything even now. The gluons that hold together the nucleus of an atom are held together by Christ. He holds us in his hand. And he is the head of the body. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, God. The creator, sustainer, the purpose, he is everything. Oh, God, the transcendent, powerful one. And then look, verse 21 starts out a little jarring, doesn't it? And you, oh, man, we just got talking about the most powerful being on earth whose power is frightening. He sustains everything. A mere flinch, and we cease to exist. And he goes, and you, (laughs) what about me? And it doesn't get better. Who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Oh man. I'm hostile in mind and evil deeds against this God who is the creator and sustainer of the world. But verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's my God. My God, when I hated him, he died for me. And he reconciled in his body. When he didn't have to, he became my God. A personal God. A God that loves me. A God that knew my sin. Knew who I was. And he stayed on that cross. That's my God. Turn to Galatians 4. This is the passage Pastor Rick read. 
It's not just a Christmas passage, though it is appropriate during this time. Again, it starts off where we're not in a good way. In the same way, we, when we were children, we were enslaved to the principles of this world. We were slaves to the world. The world thinks they're free. Oh, we don't have to do all those things you Christians do. You guys are all confined to these rules. Well, you're slaves of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, think about that. Since creation, God used every event, every birth, every death, every decision, every weather pattern, every beat of a butterfly to bring together at this point the fullness of time when it was just right, the sovereignty of God, oh God, the powerful one, the all-knowing one, the all-sovereign God. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into hearts, crying, Abba, Father, my God. It is personal. God is just not out there in the void. God is personal to us. And that's what we see with David. May we never forget that all that we have here and all that we do here is to worship God. Oh God, to worship him, but also to have an intimate relationship with him so that we can call him my God. Everything in this building, the lights, the sound, the decorations, the words on the screen, the padded seats, the air conditioning, everything in this building must be here in order to facilitate our worship of and a deeper relationship with God. There is no better use of our resources than to use them to get closer to God and further his kingdom. And that's how we do a budget. We don't do a budget going, well, how much money can we spend this year? Or how much money can we get out? Or how much can we convince them? Or, or what, what's the next big building we can build? Or No, no. We start with prayer. We start with, oh God, my God, what are you doing? And can we come along? Where are you going? We want to come. We want to be there. We want to be by your side doing the work that you have for us. And so that's where we put our money. We put our money to further the kingdom. We put our money to have a deeper relationship with God and to help you have a deeper relationship with God. We put our money towards things that glorify the God of the universe. Because we want a true relationship with God. We want to worship God as he truly is. Secondly, we desire an immediate relationship with God. Go back to Psalm. Earnestly, I seek you. Earnestly. The term for seek is actually an intense seeking or an early seeking. Some translations say, I seek you early. The idea, though, is I seek you at the early possible moment. Right? I seek you now. 
I seek you immediately. In medicine, we would say, I seek you stat. Double stat, triple stat. I want to see you now. I need to see you now. Again, the idea isn't that, that this is David's last resort and he is hoping to be heard, but rather this is David seeking God as soon as he could because David misses the intimacy he had with God. Our seeking God should not be just for some time in the future. He is not a God we only look forward to seeing on Sundays or on holidays. He is one we need to see now, every day, every moment. Go to Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 1. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments that he's uttered. We need to seek God continually, and that is what David is trying to do. He wants to see God now. He wants to see God now. Our desire for God should be an insatiable, nonstop craving to be with him. And I know that's a tall order, and I know that we will fail to do that perfectly but though we may not see perfection, I would ask us to consider what is the direction of your heart? Right? We say that sometimes. It's not perfection. It's the direction. What is the direction of your heart? And is God not honored in our struggle for perfection? When we say, I know I can do better. I want to be closer to God. Seeking God early also just can mean seeking God early. How long from the time that you first wake up does it take you to seek after God? Right? We get up, check our phone, maybe check text messages, emails, shower, hopefully. Get ready for the day. How long? How long does it say, I need God today? I need God now. Lord, where are you? I need to see you now. And we know where God is. It's not a where are you question. It is a I want to be. It's a longing to be with him now. David desired to seek after God at the earliest possible moment each day. So we seek to be with God immediately. We desire to be with God immediately. And then we desire an intense relationship with God. Remember where David is. He's in a desert. A desert is a place of extremes. The intensity of the heat, the intensity of the dryness, in fact, is so dry that you really don't even know how dehydrated you are because the sweat just evaporates off you so quickly. I remember when we um, played a game when I was an athletic trainer, we played a game in Utah. And our guys are used to Florida, swamp, right? Hot and wet. We went up there, it was cool, it wasn't that cool, but it was really dry. Immediately I got off the plane and everything on me cracked. 
right? And we got hammered that game because our guys didn't feel like they could breathe. They, they all felt like they were dying. Everything on them was dried out. They just, it wasn't a good time. But that's the desert. You won't thirst until it's an intense thirst. You won't realize it. There's intense isolation, right? There's no help in the desert. There's no help where where David is. If they forgot something, it's forgotten. They're out there. Hopefully they brought enough food. Hopefully they brought enough water. Hopefully they have enough supplies. Everything that happens in the desert, it just pops up the intensity, doesn't it? All aspects of life increase in intensity. You can't get help easy. You can't get food easy. It's dry. Nothing's around. He uses that picture. He uses that intensity to say this. My soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you like I'm in a desert where it is dry and water isn't readily available, but I need it now. It's intense. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's intense. He desired God with the intensity that a parched man would seek for water. And it's like David is seeking God was life. And in fact, later we'll see that he says, actually, your loving kindness is better than life. It's more desirable for life. David would gladly die of dehydration in the desert if that's where he could be with God. Do you have that intensity? Go to 1 Corinthians 9. Now, I know we're in 1 Corinthians, but I went a couple chapters ahead. So hopefully it's okay that I'm in 1 Corinthians. You'll probably forget what I have to say about it by the time we get to it anyways. 1 Corinthians 9.24. Here's the setting. Paul is talking about his Christian life. And he's talking to Corinth. And in Corinth, there was something called the Ismithian Games every two years. Kind of coincided with the the uh, Olympic, right? And so they'd have these games very similar to it. For two years, you didn't do anything, and then you got your shot. You got your shot to do something. One time. One time. And everyone else wants this thing, too. Everyone else wants this wreath, this perishable wreath, this prize. They're only going to say go one time. And so you train. And you're going to train harder. And you're going to make sure that you don't do anything against the rules. You're not going to step over the line when you jump. You're not going to come out of your lane when you run. You're going to do everything right because you want that prize. And so knowing the background that this church would understand that because this is where they are in Corinth, he says this in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run like you're trying to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The intensity with which you live the Christian life. 
It's like David out in the desert. Or it's like training to be an Olympic athlete. And that's going to cause an intensity, and that's going to cause you have to give up things. Does your relationship with God have an intensity to it, or is it a casual acquaintance? You know, everything that happens in an athlete's life is for what they're doing, the way they eat, the way they sleep, the way they rest. All of it goes towards their training for that prize. So let me ask you, what does your life show? Does it show an intensity to live for Christ? What do you spend your time on? What do we spend our money on? Is it our own personal entertainment? Is it our pleasure? Do we spend more on that than we do our relationship with Christ? Do we take the classes we need? Do we read the books we need to read? Do we read the Bible and learn how to study the Bible and do it like we need to? Or do we desire comfort? Do we desire pleasure? Do we desire entertainment over God? David is in the desert with nothing. Instead of desiring the comforts of his kingdom, he wants God. Are you more passionate about your personal relationship with God than anything else? How about politics? How worked up do we get about politics and we speak out online about politics and we study about things and we read articles? Do we do that for our Christian life or is that just for Sundays and Wednesdays? Where is our intensity for God? Back to Psalm 63. The next thing we'll see here is that we have a satisfaction in God. David has a satisfaction of God, verses 2 through 7. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to remember the past. While David was in the desert physically, his mind could go back to the many instances where he was simply enjoying being in the presence of God. David marveled at the power and glory of God and remembers those instances of simply intently looking at God in the tabernacle. Now, David knew God was everywhere. Psalm 139 tells us that. Where can I go away from you, God? I could go to the depths of Sheol. I could take the morning wings and ride. And yet, you're still there. So David knows God is everywhere, and yet he doesn't have that presence like we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in us that God after Pentecost, right? As we've been learning, we are a temple, as Pastor Scott has been talking about us. The Holy Spirit indwells us differently. So David yearns to be by God, yearns to be, while he wouldn't go in the Holy of Holies, he would be in the tabernacle near to God. Let me ask you, do we as believers take time to simply look at the attributes of God do we sit in a quiet place and think about the attributes of God and desire to be in a place where we can see him uninterrupted in a world of beeps and rings and notifications, alarms and distractions? Do we take time to simply quietly sit and consider the magnificent attributes of God? Do we remember that? 
what we see here from David is that when we take the time to do that, when we take the time to contemplate that, the person of God, we become satisfied with God, resulting in joy in our life. And David was satisfied with God's love. One of the attributes of love is, I'm sorry, one of the attributes of God is love. God is love. And David was satisfied with God's love. Verse 3a, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That time spent with God leads David to remember the love of God. David sees that to be loved by God is better than life itself. And we know as humans, we have a natural love for life. We may scowl, we may complain, and though we may say differently, on the whole, we will maintain life at almost all costs. I work in the ER. I can't tell you how many times someone has said, no, no, I'll just be a DNR. Something happens to me, just let me go. Then that moment comes, and they take away that DNR so fast. And at the very last moment, they're like, save me. We love life. In fact, I think that's why suicide hits us so hard because it goes against the inclination of our, our, ourselves to think that someone would want to take their life, their own life, because we're so busy pres uh, uh, preserving our life. It's ingrained in us. And yet David said, for as much self-preservation as he did in fleeing, he says, your love is better than life itself. Think about God's love. Now, I could sit here and talk about God's love, and that could be something we talk about until Christmas, but we don't have that time. So let me just take an aspect. Go to, go to uh, Romans 8. Romans 8.37. I want you to think about this love. This is the love that only the creator and sustainer of the world could have. This is only the love that a sovereign God could have for us. No other person can say this. It says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who else can say that? Who else has that type of love? That love is so great, it cannot be stopped. And David says, better to be loved by God and dead in the desert than to be alive in a palace without his love. Is that how we think? Better to be dead with God's love than alive with our comforts. While we may think David is talking about actual dying for God's love, many times the question isn't, would you die for Christ? Sometimes dying is easy. But rather the question is, will you live sacrificially for life? Living is harder. Romans 12.1, right? I beseech you, brethren, by the what? By the tender mercies of God, the things that he's given you to do what? Present your bodies 
as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Sacrifice doesn't tell the priest what he wants done. Hey, just take a leg. Maybe, maybe just a horn this time. No, everything. It's everything. If the love of Christ is better than life, then live like it's better than life. And sacrifice like it's better than life. And look at this physical response. Back to Psalm 63. You see, David, this kind of love just can't exist in a vacuum. This kind of love just can't exist and and he contain it. No, no, not David. Now, what does he say? He says, because of this, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. His lips praise him. His hands are lifted to worship him. His tongue blesses his name. This is a whole person response. Everything is oriented to God. This is how we are to worship God, right? What did he say in Deuteronomy? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So not only is David satisfied with God's love, but he's satisfied with God exclusively. Look 5a. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat of rich food. In Israel, the fat of food was not to be eaten. Leviticus 7.23 tells us that. But instead it was sacrificed to God. Leviticus 3.16. So Psalm 63 is a picture of God giving us the rich, satisfying, heavenly food that can only come from God. We are satisfied to the point that we don't go looking for any other food. In fact, we find that an offering of any other food would be repulsive. Because we are completely full and satisfied. And that's why we can say no to sin, because we are satisfied in Christ. And so sin repulses us. God is such that we should be so satisfied with him, the thought of looking for something else in which to be satisfied it would be repulsive. God is eternal. God is perfect, and thus the only one that is able to completely satisfy us. And we know this, right? I want you to think about this. Think about... The, this satisfaction as if the best thing I knew is if you've ever gone to one of these Brazilian steakhouses, right? You know what I'm saying. The first thing they have is this huge buffet it's to distract you, right? Lots of different salads and pastas and breads and cheeses. And, and then you have the card, right? Green and red. You put that thing on green and here come these guys with these sticks of meat. It's what heaven's going to be like. (laughs) And they just start cutting, right? And you have all the different cuts, sirloin, filet, picanha, chicken, sausage, pork, everything. And they wrap things in bacon. And it's great. (laughs) But then something happens. All of a sudden... Hopefully your mind stops you, but maybe it's your belly. And you turn it to red. You say, I'm satisfied. I can't eat anymore. And then they have the audacity to come up and say, would you like dessert? And you're like, no. I'm done. That's how you are to be satisfied with God. 
any thought of anything else would repulse you. Where this falls short, though, is the next day comes. And maybe you're still full for breakfast, maybe for lunch, maybe even for dinner, but eventually you'll get hungry again. And in fact, we know that because Jesus told us, tells us that in John 4.13, doesn't he? He tells the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become a spring welling up to eternal life. And so, are you satisfied with God? Are you satisfied with the one who will satisfy you forever? And again, David's going to have a physical response here. You see in verse 5, My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of the wings, I will sing for joy. We praise God not under duress or brutal compulsion, but like what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us. We are compelled because of the love of God that we just talked about. That great love compels us to love him back. We want to think about this love, and we want to dwell on the satisfaction we have in God. We think about it before we go to sleep. We think about it during our alone time when we are left with just our thoughts. Think of this, right? Why is it that right before we go to sleep, Satan loves to use that as his playground to just go, I would like to tell you all the ways you failed today. Not just today, your whole life. Let's review. You think of all the dumb things. You think of all the dumb things you've said and done. And I have given him a long list to remind me of. David, no doubt, would have that same thing. Think about this before at night. You're in the desert. You've lost everything. At any moment, they could attack you, and you're very vulnerable, and you would die. And this is because, in part, a consequence of what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's probably not very easy for him to fall asleep if that's what's on his mind. But David, with all the thoughts that could have filled his mind, instead filled his thoughts with the remembrance of God, the satisfaction that it brings. We may be tempted to think about all of our past sins, and it may be hard because maybe we're currently living in the consequences of those sins. But even in those moments, as David did here, he wants to think about God and being satisfied with God. May I just give you, a, give you a tip here. If you turn to Colossians 2, I love the book of Colossians. It's actually the first book that I ever worked through expositionally. Me and my uh, friend Spencer King, when we were doing youth together, taught through the book of Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 13, says in you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
And I ask you to do the same. When those thoughts come upon you, when those doubts, when those sins come upon you, nail them to the cross and be satisfied in God. Yeah, you may have to live with your consequences and God will bring you through. But don't let sin keep you down. Don't let your own sin keep you from looking to God and being satisfied with him. Because God doesn't. He nailed them to the cross. And they're no longer held against you. Lastly, we see that David trusts God. Verse 9 through 11. David remembers the Davidic covenant. He remembers that God said that his throne would last forever. Knows that God will establish that throne. David knows all he has to worry about is clinging to God and that God will vindicate David as he saw fit. David clings to the promises of God and chooses to dwell on them and be satisfied with them and then let God be the one to uphold him. We have that too if we turn to Matthew. Familiar part in Matthew. Matthew 6, right? Matthew 6, 24. Actually, we'll start in 25. It says, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he gives illustrations about the birds and how he feeds them and about the grass and how they look better even than Solomon in all his glory. And verse 30 says, but if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious with saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Right? Again, your heavenly father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. David had legitimate worries. David had legitimate anxieties. Wanting food and clothing and, and knowing where you're going to sleep are legitimate things that we, should, that we have to be concerned about. But what God's saying is, listen, don't let your eyes be taken off me in worrying about those because guess what? I'll take care of it. I know what you need. There are so many things in our life that present legitimate concerns and dangers to us. And God wants us to seek him first. Not like some religion, not like some good, good luck charm, not like a genie that grants wishes, grants wishes. He wants us to seek after him. And you know, the devil is good at deception, isn't he? And one of the ways, he knows he can't get us, but he makes us ineffective by making us get busy about all sort of things to distract us. Right? He gets us thinking about pandemics. Oh, what are you going to do about Omicron now? Delta was yesterday's news. Omicron's the new one, guys. What are you going to do? New York's declared a state of emergency. We're starting to cancel flights. We don't even know what this thing is. We don't know how infective it is. We don't know how dangerous it is. We just know it's there. God's saying, are you going to worry about that or are you going to seek after me? 
right? Just when we think it's done, we're going to bring up another one. And I got news for you guys. It's not going away. We're going to work through all the Greek letters. <laughs> and then I don't know what we'll do because <laughs> we're going to run out and it's going to keep coming. Are you going to seek first the kingdom of God? We have riots. We have social media. We have politics. We have critical theory. We have all of these things. It distracts us. Some of them can be legitimate. And sometimes we do have to address these things. But we address them as we move forward. We address them as we make disciples. We address them as we attack the gates of hell. And move the kingdom of God forward. We don't stop. We don't get distracted. It's not sock and bop when we're all over here doing everything else and we're not doing the one thing we're supposed to be doing. Look at Luke 10. Luke 10, 40. Right? So here we have Jesus has come to Martha's house and Martha has hospitality obligations here, right? Someone comes over to your house, you're going to do things. If it's Jesus, I'm imagining you're going to do things a little bit more. So she has legitimate things she's going to do and she's upset because her sister's not helping. And so she cries out to Jesus because she was distracted. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Look what it says before she did that, though. She was distracted. So what does Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I ask you, are you distracted and anxious about many things, or have you chosen the one good thing? that should not be taken away. And that is God. And that is worshiping God. And that is a relationship with God. What distracts you from spending time at the feet of Jesus? Jesus is saying, I'm right here. Don't get distracted. And so we trust the promises God's given us. We trust that he will provide everything we need. We trust that all these things will be added to us as God sees fit. We trust that in Romans 8.28, all things will work together. Right? They either work together for our salvation or our sanctification. And if they're bad enough, they'll lead to our glorification, won't they? Because the worst they can do is kill us and send us to glory. So everything will work together for our good and for God's glory. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that much like the Grand Inquisitor, if Jesus came back today, many who call themselves Christians would hate him. You see, for many churches and many believers, Jesus has become nothing more than a symbol to them. He is a symbol that is pliable. They think they can mold him and shape him into whatever lifestyle they want to. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is not a symbol. He is an all-powerful, sovereign God and Savior of our souls, we don't bend him to our will. He bends us to his. So for some here today, Jesus may have been nothing more than a symbol and maybe has not been anything. I'm here to ask you today and here to tell you Jesus is a real person who is God 
and who is holy, and your sin is separating you from him. I beg you to repent. I beg you to confess your sins to God. Confess that Jesus is Lord and give your life to God as a living sacrifice. Have a personal relationship with God. We'll have men up here in front if you want to talk to them that can show you how to do this. That can show you what it means to have salvation in a personal relationship with God. For us at Riverbend, if we want to be different here, it has to start with each of our hearts. Riverbend is not some abstract entity, but rather it is each one of you collectively coming together. Right? Riverbend isn't just something up in the ether. It's made up of each and every one of you sitting in the pews. That's Riverbend. And so if we want to change Riverbend, it starts with our hearts individually. If we wish to be different, the Ephesian church, then each of us has to examine our own hearts and see, do we love Christ as a symbol or do we love the person of Christ? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And Lord, I thank you for these people. Lord, prick our hearts. Prick our hearts that we may be people who love you and not just the symbol of you. May we be satisfied in you. May we desire you. May we trust in you. Show us where we aren't doing that. Show us our impurities, Lord. I thank you for these people. I thank you for their willingness to listen to me. I pray now that we will take this message and we will apply it to our hearts. In your son's name, amen.